was going to say. Oh, so uh, the DVDs you have, um, I started, I started buying a couple DVDs because, um, there are some movies, particularly foreign movies, that you can't always stream when, like, right on, you know, on demand, literally. And yeah. um, I also like my favorite movie is uh, the French movie Amelie, which. I thought I owned on like Apple TV or something. And I right. learned maybe you might already know this, the, that when you buy a movie on something like Apple, you're actually doing a indefinite rental. And right. so as soon as their contract or whatever, if that expires with the rights, of the distributor, then you don't have it anymore. And so, uh, yeah, I own like three DVDs now. And <laughs> I just picked them up the last year, but that is that why, like, so looking at everything behind you that I can see, I see Blu-rays, I see DVDs. Do you do that for a similar reason or do you just like having the DVDs? It's one of those things where uh, these are all quite old, to be honest. I've had them okay. for a long time and it's just, I don't get rid of them once I buy them, unless, unless it's a movie I really just don't like anymore, or I gave sure. something a shot and it turned out to be a, piece of crap and then i just get rid of it but uh the movies that i do like that i enjoy watching over again i like to keep them and, and it's for a similar reason like you say i mean i have streaming you know and i i most of the films i watch these days mm -hmm. i watch them on streaming but every now and then there will be a movie that i want to watch and it's simply not available on the platforms i'll give you a perfect example you know you mentioned amelie i'll give you another french movie uh the brotherhood of the wolf it's a okay. fantastic film came out in the early 2000s um, this wonderful, wonderful uh, period piece, action fantasy. And um, it's simply not out there on the streaming platforms, you know, at least not that I can find. And uh, I've got it on DVD. So if oh, I yeah. watch it, I can just pop it in. And like you say, with the, uh, with the uh, advent of Apple and all these things, you find out you don't actually own these movies. You're just kind of perpetually renting them. And anytime they decide to get rid of them or or even anytime they decide to alter them, because mm -hmm. that's been a thing that's been happening lately, where mm. some of these platforms are are making changes to films. Um, and it's usually done for uh, from a position of like, you know, there's some kind of potentially offensive content or problematic content. And so they, mm. they edit it creatively to maybe either get rid of a specific scene or change the dialogue in a scene or something like this. And so you're not really getting that original movie anymore. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I, I like to have the, the, the untouched yeah, copy, I, let's it's say. It's just nice to know that. So I'll show you my three movies. Yeah. Um, so the three the three DVDs I currently own are Amelie, like I said. Yeah. Um, I also, I still need to watch this uh, embarrassingly, embarrassingly enough. Old Boy, the... Okay korean film which uh yep. yeah people people go nuts when they talk about it and then i had to pick up my favorite film of the year everything everywhere all there at we once go. um that was a fun movie i'm curious uh we just saw the oscars did you like not necessarily so i i did a like an oscars episode with some buddies i'm curious if you like like what some, were some of your picks not necessarily who you thought well, you know, you know what I mean. Well, like, who who would you have voted for for like best picture, or was it even nominated? Or it was, uh, in my opinion, the best picture was Top Gun: Maverick. Mm. I, I really thought that film nailed it on all fronts. Um, it, it's one of those movies that could have turned out 
a lot different than it was. It could have been a CG spectacular. Do you know what I mean? Where everything was utterly fake uh, yeah. because that's what most modern films are. Um, Tom Cruise could have come across as very tired, old, more like, you know, like Mark Hamill did in the Star Wars retreads um, or, or yeah. Harrison Ford. They could have gone in that direction. Yeah. And I'm glad that they didn't. There was this narrative, which I really appreciated as somebody who is getting older myself, the idea that, you know, just because you're older, you still have something to contribute to the world and you mm -hmm. shouldn't just be dismissed outright. Um, but then the practical effects were just jaw dropping. It's it's one of the oh, yeah. few it's one of the few movies last year that I made a, a an actual attempt to see in IMAX because I thought this needs to be seen on that extra big screen with the you know mm -hmm. booming sound and i mean it did win the oscar for sound which it clearly deserved yeah uh, but i thought it, i thought it should have won on a couple of other fronts namely the visual effects um simply because the fact that they were using practical effects and they mounted these imax cameras inside fighter jets mm -hmm. which is stunning like if you've ever seen imax cameras they're they're gigantic they're huge yeah. so to be able to actually engineer this thing to fit inside that tiny little cockpit um whoever did this they should be given some kind of special prize alone for the for the technical achievement <laughs> absolutely i and it's funny what you said was exactly what came up when i was talking to my friends about it because they made they made some offhand comment of like oh like they did such a great job of making it look like they were actually flying in the planes and i was like no that's that's what's brilliant about the movie they were actually in the planes that's and right. i will say that i do wish i had seen it in imax now that you say that i do wish i had seen that um it that way um it it's one it's a movie that like i think it was after the fact that I saw it, that I was seeing a lot of the behind the scenes stuff, but it's so inspirational as a filmmaker and, yes. um, you know, and, and, and Tom Cruise is not just a actor and movie star, but he's also, I believe an executive producer on it, um, mm -hmm. or, or a producer, whatever. I mean, he's leading the charge in many ways and, yes. um, their commitment to, I mean, that adds to the whole experience of it is like oh they're actually doing this and it mm -hmm. it like i'm not going to jump out of a plane but i mean i have before but i'm not going to do it again i don't i can't imagine <laughs> doing it for a film but it does like i don't know it, about you but it inspires me to be like how can i how can i make the filming process more of an adventure you know like mm -hmm. and and you know they're basically it feels like when he's doing his movies or you see some of the stuff going on for mission impossible right now, it's like, how do you do that sort of uh, adrenaline junkie, push yourself to your limits, live life to the fullest. But then how do you attach that to uh storytelling? Um, I don't know. Did, is, did you get any of that from when you're watching it or watching some of that behind the scenes? Does it inspire you at all as a filmmaker? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I've always been a big proponent of practical effects in mm -hmm. the film. Um, I love I, I love what people do with CG. Uh, but to me, the best uses of CG, and this was uh, told to me by a, by a CG artist, and I, I've always thought it was really great advice. The best CG is the kind of CG that you don't realize is computer generated. Yeah. You, you sort of just accept it as being real. 
because it's part of the practical, it's added onto the practical uh, as an extra layer. Yeah. And it just add, adds a little bit of depth to what you're seeing. And to me, I, I think that's a great use of it. When you see uh, a lot of modern films, especially you know the, the ones that come to mind clearly would be something like the Marvel films, um, where the CG tends to take over the film. Oh, yeah. And you understand why. I mean, there's a clear reason, especially if it's something um, completely supernatural, like superheroes or aliens or things like this. You can't really do a lot of this stuff practically. But that said, there's still a lot you can do practically, especially when it comes to, you know, creature effects or a lot of stunt work or things like this. And Tom Cruise is one of those anomalies in our modern world where he's kind of one of the last true action stars. I would put Keanu Reeves probably right up next to him as somebody who goes out of their way to try to make something look very real, doing a lot of their own stunt work um, and you get the sense that these guys are, you know, really ready to put it all on the line just for this product. And and it's, I mean, it's admirable, but it's yeah. not one of those things that I would be like, oh, I don't know if I would do something like this. Well, it's you like know? you heard about, he has a movie coming up there where they're going to shoot it in space. You heard about that? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, like, uh, everyone's going to go see that movie. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, oh my God gosh um yeah just just knowing yeah. that it's real of course you are you know because it, it's you know it's not somebody in a sound set you know it's not somebody in front of a green screen this is an actor who's really up there in outer space in a spaceship like wow who wouldn't want to see that yeah oh my <laughs> gosh um you know i, I kind of change the subject i realized that yeah. um just in case anyone listening uh doesn't uh well it'll I'll have your name in the title of the episode but one one of the first first of all you are the first person I've had on uh who's a total stranger uh yes. and so this is kind of fun for me to uh to get to talk to someone with like I I mean I looked up your movie saw the trailer and all that stuff and you know looked at IMDb and that kind of stuff but uh so that's a, a first thing it's kind of fun to have someone new on uh but i also mm -hmm. want to make like i could talk about you know all this stuff forever i want to make sure though we talk about your movie real quick because yeah. or not even real quick but i want to make sure we we talk about it but um spin the wheel and it's your first feature film is that right is that what you said it's it's my directorial debut so it's not D my first movie i've i've done right. i've done a number of films either as a writer or an actor Right. Um, but it's the first time I've actually stepped behind the camera to sort of lead the charge. And yeah, uh, yeah it's been a great experience. Yeah, it it looks really cool. Um, and Thank so you. right now where you're at in the process is film festivals. Is that right? That's right. That's right. So we the film was pretty much finalized, uh, I would say, mid-January of this year. And then we just started that submission process, you know, trying to get it out wide to as many festivals as we can um we're being very selective because festivals as you know there's so many of them out there and yeah. it's very easy to fall down that rabbit hole and suddenly you're spending way more money than you should and not really getting the return out of it right. um so so we're hoping to hear from the first festival um i guess by the end of this month and, uh, you know, fingers crossed. Uh, we've been getting some great reviews um, in the meantime. Um, and that's been very encouraging. We had a we had a private screening for for 
the cast crew family and friends and and across the board it was great i mean you kind of expect it because everybody's kind of attached to the movie in some way sure. but uh, at the same time um everybody's been really kind in what they've said and the feedback's been really great so it's encouraging and um yeah and i and i noticed um on the website but also especially on imdb it seems like you have a filmmaking partner that or someone who also is contributing to the directing and cinematography and was it that's right uh music it was like it was like an odd yes. combination yeah. that uh what david yeah, yeah. Name. it's like david, david okay doing yes okay. so, so basically brimstone so brimstone pictures that's that's our production company there's really three of us involved in it so there's myself david haycock and preston awasiuk and we each wear multiple hats mm -hmm. in the company um david and i um we kind of take care of the creative side of things on this film uh, i wrote it i i act in it um i'm co-directing it david is doing the other side of the co-direction and we really kind of split everything down the middle in terms of I focused on the story and the performance side of things. Mm. Dave focuses on the shot composition, the mm -hmm. lens selection, um, you know, the more technical side of things. And right. then he kind of picks up the slack on the creative side when I'm in front of the camera and sure. I can't do it. Um, so that, and it worked out really, really well that way. And then, um, in addition to that, Dave is also an accomplished musician. So he wrote, uh, the scoring for the film. We have a full soundtrack with a lot of, um, different bands who've supplied us with different songs for the film, but over and above that, Dave does the scoring. Um, let me see what else Dave and I took on the editing, uh, between the yep. two of us, um, I, I uh, assisted uh, Brandon, who actually plays one of the characters in the film as well, in the color correction and the VFX side of things. And then Preston took on um, the producing side of things. He's great at that. Fantastic guy. He's he's the kind of guy that you want in your team to find the locations, like the, the bar that we actually film in uh, mm -hmm. and the offices and things like this. Um, that's that's Preston's niche, and he is phenomenal at that sort of stuff. Um, as well as he took on the sound. So he did a lot of the post work on mm. the sound. And uh, so everybody wears multiple hats. I think yeah. it's one of those things. It's a micro-budget film. You have yeah. to. You know, you, yeah. you just simply don't have the budget to, to throw it out there to some big firm to say, hey, guys, do this for us. Get it back to us in two months. Um, we have to do it ourselves. And, and I'm, you know. The good part of that is you have full creative control. The bad part of it is it can it can take a little longer. Yeah, yeah, but well, yeah, but that's fair. Uh, yeah, you're you're doing what you need to do to get it done. Um, and exactly. um, wh what uh, what software do you use for editing? Out of curiosity. Yeah, we use DaVinci Resolve. Um, it's it, it's been great. Um. I really can't say um, many bad things about it. Uh, it does tend to be a little buggy at times. Mm. Uh, and I'm sure people who use it probably are aware of it. When we started the process, we were using uh, Resolve 17. Um, and they're up to 18 now. Um, we didn't upgrade to 18 specifically because we didn't want there to be any compatibility issues between mm -hmm. 17 and 18. So we kind of just stuck with the older version. And as I understand it, you know, I've been working a lot more with 18 now, um, bringing myself up to speed. And as I see it, they've kind of worked out a lot of those 
little bugs that were in there before. Mm. Um, but once you get used to them, once you understand, okay, this is the limitations of the program, yeah, then you can work with it and it, it works really well. I've been thinking about switching over. I, I use Premiere Pro, but um, mm. not enough to warrant the price when, I mean, there, there are just as many tutorials online about how to do whatever you need to do in DaVinci Resolve. Like, and more and more when I search for things like, oh, I'm trying to do this. Uh, right. Sometimes it'll come up with a DaVinci Resolve um especially like color correction, everyone's posting all these things online about like, oh, you, you can recreate this look and this is how I did it. Mm -hmm. and, and then it's DaVinci Resolve. And I'm thinking like, well, why am I paying money when everyone else seems to be going towards this, this free software that clearly is capable of doing what you need? Yeah, um, that's, that was why we picked it up in the first place, because it was free. Um, yeah. and, and then, you know, we eventually did upgrade to the studio because um, one of the limitations of the free program is in the output of it. Mm. You can't actually get 4K output out of the free program. I think uh... it has a limitation of 1080p, which is great for most things. Yeah. You know, if, if you're putting together like a YouTube video or something like this, that's all you really need. But we want it for our film, you know, because right. it's a movie. We want it to be able to be uh, in a movie theater on a film festival. So we said, okay, no, it needs to be at a certain level. So let's let's upgrade and and get the right package. But to to your other point, in terms of color grading, that's how DaVinci started out. It was yeah. a, originally a purely color grading program that then they expanded into um into sort of everything else editing, everything else. Do you know how much does it cost to upgrade from the to the studio version or Oh God, I don't want to um I could look misquote it up. the price. Preston was the one who kind of arranged that part of it. So I, I don't know the exact price. It's a few hundred dollars. Honestly, it yeah, wasn't it looks bad. like three hundred bucks. Yeah. At a glance. Um right. Yeah, three hundred bucks. A, it's which, a very reasonable Yeah. I mean, like because Premiere Pro is like twenty I think I'm paying twenty bucks a month. So I mean hmm. you know, I, I mean after a year, it's yeah. not that different. Um, That's right. Also, just a just a side note. Um, as we go through this, if we talk about like anything, like particularly money or whatever, and it, if you don't want to answer it or you can't because of whatever, like no problem. But also, I can cut stuff out. Um, it sure. if in retrospect, you know what I mean. Like just a side note because <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to like. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because you know, uh, I I just like to ask all this stuff about like um, like for example, like would you share what the budget for your film is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's something we're actually very, very proud of. Uh, our budget is uh twenty five thousand US. Wow, and you got a and you got a feature done. That's amazing. We did, we did. Yeah, we are we we managed to stretch it out. It was, it's one of those things. Uh, it's a game we kind of like to play with people to say once they've seen the movie, what do they think the budget is? Um, and we've had answers anywhere from you know, 200,000 to somebody even said $800,000, which we thought was incredibly complimentary. Um, but we haven't had anybody said anything less than that, you know, less than 200. And which is, that's kind of what we're aiming for. Um, that's mm -hmm. been our, our kind of core mission from the start to, to be able to do a lot with a little, our, our first, um, our first short film uh, as a company was, boneyard racers which people can find the trailer for online it's it's actually available 
uh, on you know DirecTV and Amazon Prime uh, in the States. So if your listeners want to ever check it out, by all means, we would love that. Um, it was a fantasy short, about 15 minutes long. It's all about uh, these two teenagers who driving home on Halloween night get roped up into a drag race with the devil. So it's okay. kind of like a devil comes down to Georgia, but upgraded. And uh, uh, we wanted to do it with uh, with racing cars. And um, the whole thing, practical, um, you know, going back to the, the idea of using practical effects. And uh, we won a number of awards. I think we, were, we won something like 23 awards for the film. Our budget is $500. Wow. And it does not look like a $500 film. And I'm not saying because I'm bragging about it. Uh, it, yeah. it, it, it like clearly does not. Um, so yeah, we, we, we managed to stretch out the dollar as much as we can. I think it's because we're passionate about what we do. Um, we, we love what we do and we wear many hats yeah. and we like to, we like to bring in people to the fold who are equally passionate, you know, all the actors we had on spin the wheel, um, all the crew, Everybody was just amazing, amazing to work with. I can't say enough great things about everyone. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, and speaking of the devil, the, based on the <laughs> the trailer and the synopsis and uh, all that, uh, looks like yeah. you have the devil coming back in this in this uh, feature. Yeah, it, it has nothing to do with with Boneyard Racers. It's not a, a the two properties aren't linked at all. Um, and in fact, this script uh, I had written before Boneyard Racers. I'd, I'd written it before. You know, a lot of people think it has something to do with COVID or it's a reaction to the sort of the pandemic and things like this. But in reality, it's a script that I wrote in, oh gosh, I want to say 2018, 2019. So it was mm -hmm. a few years before any of the world went as crazy as it did. But... I don't know. I think maybe the writing was on the wall already, even in my head back then. I, you know, you sort of see things going in a certain direction, and um, I thought, yeah, let's let's make a little story about this. You know, do you um, tend to like darker, darker films? Is that part of it? Is just like you know, sometimes, especially if something is more horror or scary or whatever, that can like that can just be fun for some people. Is that kind of how it is for you? It is. I, I love yeah. genre films in general. You know, I yeah. love action. I love horror. I love sci-fi, fantasy, all of that stuff. Um, it's, but at heart, every one of my stories that I write or even that I enjoy as a viewer, I love the idea of fairly ordinary people being put into extraordinary situations. That's sure. what I'm really drawn to because it's always that question in the back of my head as a viewer, what would I do in a situation like this? Mm -hmm. And so when I write a story, when I film something, I would love for the audience to be asking that that same question. Yeah, absolutely. And what was the what was sort of like the timeline for this film like in terms of like how long did the writing take? How long did pre-production, post-production, production, you know, like what what was the timeline for yeah. everything? Writing it took a few months. Um, I wasn't under any pressure to write it. There mm -hmm. wasn't any specific goal or I wasn't writing it for anyone in specific. I, I just had a story that I wanted to write. So I took my time with it. It took a few months uh, from start to finish. Um, and then, of course, you know, part of the pre-production and filming process uh, is also on the set rewriting, you mm -hmm. know, uh, to sort of 
make changes with regards to maybe specific actors or the specific location that we got, things like this. As far as pre-production went, once we decided this is what we're going to do, this is kind of going to be our, our first feature, everything fell into place rather quickly. Um, the script was written to be a micro-budget production. That sure. was always in the back of my head because it's primarily a single location. Mm -hmm. It has a small cast. Um, and it only required a small crew. So the idea was it would be contained, it would be small uh, from get-go. So our biggest challenge was really finding the two main locations that we needed for the film. The first being the office where the film opens up. There's an office scene. And that's honestly pretty easy between you and me. Uh, everybody more or less knows somebody who works in an office environment and, yeah. and then it's a question of going in there on a weekend and saying you know can we just use your office for a few hours and and you know by and large most people are amenable to that sort of thing the second location was a little bit more difficult and it took a little bit more time uh, and that's the bar the bar that everything is set in um, so for your listeners let me just backtrack a little bit the the premise of the film is that it's the end of the world it's it's not a um, it's not something that might happen. It is something that is actually underway. It's mm -hmm. happening when the movie starts, and the movie plays out really in real time. So we have approximately ninety to one hundred minutes until the end of the world. That's where the film starts, and the film kind of ends. Well, I won't give it away, yeah. but let's just say <laughs> there is an ending. Okay, um, and. Uh, we wanted to have, because it's set in a bar, it's about a group of strangers who meet in this dive bar at the end of the world because they really have nowhere else to be. Mm -hmm. um, my I genesis like that. for the film. Yeah. See, and that really came from my love of genre films. This idea, I love, I love disaster movies. That's one yeah, of the films yeah. I love watching because it's like, but they're always the same. It's always a, a small group of people or maybe one or two heroes who are kind of, traveling over the across the world or going into outer space or doing this or that and they're the ones who are saving the world and it sort of brought a question to my mind while watching it was well, what the heck did the rest of the world what is the rest of the world the 99.99999 percent of the rest of us what are we doing in that situation and i i posed that question to to all of my friends and some of my family and i said if you knew the world was going to end today in two hours, let's say, yeah. what would you do? Everybody without a beat said, I would spend it with the people I love. I would, yeah. I would, you know, go to my family. I would go with my friends, whatever, and, and be with the people I care the most about. I said, I can understand that. What would you do if you couldn't, if you were physically too far away or if you didn't have somebody. And then yeah. again, without missing a beat, I got the same answer, which was, I would find the nearest bar and I would get drunk. Yeah. And and that's where it kind of started this idea of like, okay, so I have a group of people in mind in the story who by circumstance or, or simply because they have no one else, they are alone. Mm -hmm. And so they find themselves in this little bar in the middle of a, a big city and they just want to drink the last 90 minutes or so away. And then, you know, me being a, a, a genre fan, I thought I'd throw in a sort of supernatural monkey wrench into the mix. And I introduced this idea where the devil shows up and offers them a chance to say, if you beat me in a game of Russian roulette, I will turn 
things back to the way they were. I will make this end of the world go away. But if you lose, I get your soul. Mm. And, um, you know, different characters in the film play for different reasons. Some of them play because they really want things to return back to normal. Others play because they want a second chance at life. Yet others play because it's fun and might as well, you know, yeah. go out on your own terms as opposed to waiting for this inevitability. Um, so different characters buy into it at different levels. And uh, yeah, so this this bar was a very important piece of the puzzle. And we wanted to find the right location. And that that part took us a few months because it was it was literally just going kind of from bar hopping in our city here of Edmonton, Alberta, trying to find the right place. Um, we came to a few possibilities, but you know what it is. It's it's a question of a bar is also a business. So we have a small budget. We can't afford to simply rent out an entire bar for a few weeks time because yeah. they, what then you're asking them to do is to say, you need to put your business on hold right <laughs> so that we can film there um no bar is going to do that yeah. so we we came up with some you know creative solutions um in the end we found the perfect place uh it's it's called the 9910 bar here in Edmonton and it is just a fantastic it's this sort of speakeasy style bar where you actually have to go down a flight of stairs it's in a basement uh and it's set up like an kind of like an old-fashioned speakeasy it has so much character um it it really is a separate character in the film um and and we worked out a wonderful arrangement with the folks that that own the bar that run it um in that they are typically closed on sundays and mondays so those were the days that we arranged then to be able to come in and film so while they have their you know regular work week, we basically tear down everything on Sunday nights. Once we're done, they have their regular work week. And then when we come back on the following, uh, oh, sorry, Monday nights. And then when we come back on the following Sunday morning, we put everything back up again. So it matches, you know, continuity wise and things like this. And how, how long was filming? How many days? In total, I oh my gosh, I want to say it was around two weeks in total, like like you know, 14 days, 14, 14 days, 16 days, something wow. like this. It was it was it was really great. Um, but that's of course a spread over two days a week for you know so many weeks. So yeah. so it took filming in total took about two months or so um, yeah. just to be able to get that many days in. Wow. And um okay. And then how long did editing take? That's that's the part that took the really long time. Um, and when so did you finished... when did you wrap filming? Sorry. When did you wrap? Filming? Yeah, yeah. When was that end date? It would have been uh, December or January. I think December of 2021. Okay. Um, yeah, that's that feels right to me. We might have done some pickup shots in January. Um Oh, we did. Actually, that's that's right. We did. There's a sequence in the film that um, two sequences, there's a, a TV in the bar. And so different things occur on the TV as our story is progressing. One is a news broadcast, uh, which we shot in front of a green screen at a later date. One is a music video, which is supposed to be kind of like a pop bubblegum music video. We had um, we shot that in a school. And then the third scene that you see is kind of a threes company style sitcom 
that we shot in one of our uh, crew members' apartments uh, because she lived in this kind of old '70s style apartment, and it was it was absolutely perfect for the what we were trying to uh, accomplish. And those things were all shot afterwards, so that would have been about January, I believe. I believe it was of um, of twenty twenty two. Yeah, last year. And then we spent the rest of the year um, editing. And, yeah. you know, it's the editing process. It's the color correction. It's adding the VFX. It's finding the right music. Um, Dave, uh, then writing the scoring, composing it, recording it, putting it into the film. Um, Preston working on, on the sound, cleaning it up as much as we could. We had a little bit of ADR that we had to do as well. Um, just for practical reasons, you know, sometimes when you're filming, uh, mm -hmm. using microphones, the sound quality can be hit and miss depending on the location of the mic or, or the room itself. Maybe there's some echo or even outside noise, because of course we did film this in a bar that's actually in downtown Edmonton. So there would be occasional noises outside. And right. so, you know, when these things happen, you need to do some ADR afterwards. Yeah. Process. And, and then, um. <laughs> As far as the, like, so, uh, okay. So then you, you finished it. And then mm -hmm. after that, I mean, did you just immediately start looking into festivals or did you have, was there overlap in terms of like, let's sit down and make a game plan or was that plan already established? That game plan portion was really just conversations we had throughout that entire process, mm -hmm. you know, um, I believe our first conversations were when we were even first thinking about it because the idea was why are we doing this film? Mm -hmm. What's the purpose of it? Um, and I think we're all in, in agreement that our primary objective with it is first of all, to make a really good movie, the best mm -hmm. that we can to our abilities. Um, we're all movie fans ourselves. So we, we want to do right by the process and by the audience. But secondly, there was this idea, well, if we're ever going to establish ourselves as real players in this business, we we need to come up with something of quality, but we know our limitations. And our chief limitations is our is budget, right? Yeah. It's budgetary limitations. That's that's the big thing. We can't afford to have big names in this thing. We can't afford to have big special effects. We can't afford to have big stunts uh, or big set pieces. But what we can't afford to do is to find the best people in our small niche here, in our small area, uh, who will pour, pour their hearts and souls into it. And we hope that it will be reflected on screen. And uh, then use that as a stepping stone to the next thing. So if I can back up a little bit, Boneyard Racers was our stepping stone to this feature hmm. because it'll, it actually got us that funding to make the feature. Gotcha. Um, and we're hoping that this feature will be our stepping stone to the next level, you know, right. and um, we don't have a lack of, of creativity in our, in our pool. We have, uh, you know, because I'm a writer, I've got a ton of stories. I've got a ton of scripts. Dave is also a writer. He also has some fantastic scripts. So we have this sort of backlog of projects right. ready to go. It's just a matter of, okay, Timing and, and money, of course, right? The yeah. Two big limitations. <laughs> and so um, on the money side of this, so mm -hmm. if if you, I, I would imagine 
that with Boneyard Racers, using that to establish that you can do you can do it and the quality you can do it at and then mm-hmm. able to raise the money but also i would assume that when you raise that money you're you're going to try and get that money back to them yes. obviously and Absolutely. be profitable and so that obviously ties in for a feature film that very much ties into one of the the main reasons of these film festivals is if you can get picked up by a distributor or whoever. Um, And I'm, I'm curious a little bit about that because like the game, I feel like the whole thing is kind of changing right now because there's Mm -hmm. some, like, for example, there are some avenues where you could just self-distribute. But what, what are the kind of things you're looking for right now? Um, You know, specifically when you're getting uh noticed at these film festivals yeah it's 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 an interesting it's an interesting sort of um field out there these days and like you say it's changing um it's it's changed quite a lot since i first got into film uh i want to say as well it used to be this idea that you go into a film festival you do well there some distributor notices you and then hopefully you get a good deal out of it that was kind of the old system yeah i don't know how viable it is anymore although that's exactly what happened to us with boneyard racers um we we got it into a couple of festivals we ended up playing at crimson screen horror festival we won award there for best cinematography and based on the festival's relationship with shorts tv shorts tv then contacted us said the festival recommended your film for our platform and we got worldwide distribution through it so it does still happen you know it's one of those interesting things as much as people say oh you know it's sort of a pipe dream it's not really because it, it actually happened to us now can that happen on a feature level i don't know um and and this is one of the things where you know we were upfront and fully honest and transparent with our investors from moment one to say this is one of the limiting factors of a a low budget film yeah most films that have a higher budget that can afford to have a name attached to it they typically have a much easier time getting distribution of any kind yeah right um simply because you're banking on that one name to sell the film when you don't have that, you really have to rely more on word of mouth than yeah. anything else to push your film forward. And the only way you're going to get good word of mouth is if you put out a quality product, right? Mm-hmm. And how do you get the maximum amount of reach? Well, to me, the idea is you put it into the right festivals. Yeah. So it's not just simply a blanket of throwing it into just anything and oh, saying, yeah. you know, oh, we got into, you know, New Jersey high school festival number 12 it's like who cares nobody cares about that but if you can get into something that's that's well known specifically in the genre that you created in so for example if you write a horror film yeah try to get it into the right horror festivals as opposed to you know uh, some people will throw that net wide and say oh we're going for tiff and we're going for sundance and you have to look at it and say how realistic is that how realistic is it for a no-name film with a small budget, especially in a genre, a genre yeah. film, getting wide distribution or getting into that film festival in the first place? It might happen. 
I don't know, lightning can strike, I guess, you know, people could win the lottery, but it really is just that it's winning a lottery. I think if you take a much more nuanced and practical approach, you say to yourself, I want to find my audience. Yeah, I'm writing for myself first and foremost, as a member of that audience, I would like to find people who are like me, who enjoy the kinds of films that I enjoy. Where am I going to find them? Well, I'm going to find them at these specific festivals. So those are the festivals that I'm aiming for. Those are the festivals that I'd like to target and get the film into to see that can it find an audience among those folks? And then if it can, you find that word of mouth then does tend to spread because what happens is at film festivals, they're wonderful networking events. And for any, any uh, you know, burgeoning filmmakers out there or actors, producers, directors who, who would like to make a career in this business go to as many film festivals as you can even yeah. if your stuff's not playing in them if, yeah. if you have a local film festival go to it because it's a wonderful networking event you mm -hmm. get to meet other like-minded people you know you get to I've, I've done a number of collaborations with other creatives that i've i've met simply from being at a at a festival and um that really gives you a much better sense of what are audiences looking for? What are other creatives working on? Mm -hmm. What are the trends in that specific genre or even in your field in general that are worth following, that are worth pursuing? Um, what are things maybe you should be avoiding moving forward? Like you get a really good sense of all of these things from festivals. So to me, it, the benefits of it are, are really great and they far outweigh that small submission fee that you pay. You know, um, because again, it is a crapshoot. It's all very subjective. You don't know where you're going to get in. You don't know uh, how it will be received, even if you do get in. I always feel truly blessed anytime a festival picks up something I've written or, or, or filmed. And I feel even more so if it happens to win some kind of an award, because to me, that's just, you, you know, the icing on a, on a cake yeah. that's already great. Yeah. And are you are are you guys using Film Freeway or are you how are you going about it? Yeah, Film Freeway. That's kind of the the go to for us. Yeah. Um, it's kind of the the only game in town, really, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I, you know, as far as scripts go, if if you're a writer, there's there are some alternatives like Coverfly, for example. I know they have uh, their own platforms, and I have gone submitted through them. But as far as film goes, it used to be pretty much you had two, right? You had Without a Box and you had Film Freeway. But Without a Box went by the wayside years ago. So now they're kind of really the only game in town as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And um, what about um, when you did the premiere for Friends, Family, Cast, Crew? Did you just rent out a local theater or what? how did you do that? That turned out to be a fantastic thing. And and I, I just have to say, it wasn't a premiere officially. Or, um, and this is one of those technicalities because of film festivals. Film festivals, there are right. certain ones that demand premiere status, whether right. it's at the world level, North American level, state level, or city level. It all depends on the festival. So we had to be very careful about that. So it, it wasn't a public screening. So it's, it's a private screening. It's by invitation only. Nobody had to pay anything, um, you know, so it, we don't call that a premiere for that reason. 
but um yeah originally we were looking at venues like movie theaters you know wanting to do something like that but um we came up with something a little bit more alternative and a lot more fun there is a company called rec room here in in western canada um it's kind of a, a great venue it's a combination restaurant arcade they have vr they've got you know oh. um all these different activities but then they also have these uh halls that you can rent out for specific events either like uh you know uh parties or or screenings or even musical acts things like this and i had remembered that they did that and i remembered seeing somebody else's uh film project being shown at one of those so we we looked into that and it turned out to be the best decision we could make. We we were able to fit around 200 people into the venue, which was about the right size for what we wanted to go for. Um, but the great part was because it was very much more like um, club seating, you know, yeah. um, and it's a licensed venue. People could drink, people could have meals. Um, yeah. they when you're describing how... Popcorn. Oh, sorry, when you were describing the movie earlier about how everyone's in a bar, I was like, I hope they had alcohol at this event when they, they did. you know, yeah, you need it. Was, it. it was fantastic. Yeah. And and the folks there were were just amazing. They were so easy to deal with. Um, they they really bent over backwards for us to make us feel welcome. And uh, we put on a, a really great show. We had a musical act to start the night, which was actually one of the bands that appears in the movie, their music appears in the movie. So they did a, a set about a 20 minute set before the film. And that really got everybody into a great mood. Um, and then we watched this, watch the show. And uh, yeah, we had a little Q and a afterwards just for, for the folks that weren't as familiar. Um, and uh, yeah, everything went really, really well. Cool. Um, how, how many, um, I, I remembered a question I was thinking about about the film festivals. Um, how many yeah. are you submitting to? Because uh, you know, talking about you know, you got to be smart about which ones you actually submit to. Yeah, we 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 do have a budget for it. Um, that we we set aside some of the money originally, so um, that we got we said okay, this portion is going to go towards the film festivals. Um, because it it does add up. It adds up quickly, you know, film yeah. festivals in general, um, you want to get in on the early bird deadlines for most festivals because that, those are the cheapest, right? Um, mm -hmm. But you also want to do that because that's when festivals are most amenable to films. I find yeah. um, one of the things I've learned over the years is if you're coming in at that late deadline, it's almost like don't even bother because mm -hmm. the the folks watching the films are probably so tired of watching them already that they might not give you as fair of a shot as the film probably deserves. And it's not their, their fault. It's simply there. I think they're just kind of saturated by what they see and they've probably already made the decisions, at least in the backs of their heads. So, you know, that's just a little tip for folks, but um, we, we did have a budget for it and we said, okay, you know, uh, this is how much we're going to spend because each festival charges anywhere between, you know, I don't know, I want to say $30 to, to $100, something like that for yeah. for uh, submission fees. And uh, it can add up fast. So yeah. you have to be kind of picky about it. Um, we don't have a set limit. It's kind of like until that money kind of runs yeah. out, let's, let's just see how far it can take us. But we are being very picky as to where we go. We don't want to just send it to any old festival. 
there are some festivals which we're approaching where we've either, you know, I've either had my scripts um, do well at, or I've had my, uh, we had Boneyard Racers do well at. So we have some history with some folks, um, other festivals, we're just kind of taking a, a chance and saying, let's, let's see what happens. This looks like the kind of festival that might like this content um, just based on their previous screenings. You know, we kind of do our due diligence. We're looking at what kind of movies have screened there in the past. Do they look like our, in any way, does it look like our film? Does it have yeah. the same tone? Um, that sort of stuff. Um, you know, again, it goes to that thing. If, if you're making a horror movie, don't submit to a festival that's all about rom-coms because yeah. you're not going to get in. You're just wasting your money at that point and, and it goes by fast. And when you were making it, um, how much, uh, I'm trying to think of like, I guess my question is, you know, you talk about writing for yourself and, and looking for an audience that you like and seeing yourself in that audience. And, um, did you think, how much did you think about how people are going to be watching this? Uh, for example, shooting for, to be seen in a film festival or shooting it to be seen in a theater or on a laptop or a TV. Our primary goal was that it be seen, it would play well on a big screen. Yeah. That, that was kind of our first goal because we figured honestly, if it looks good on a big screen, it'll look good on a small screen. And it, it doesn't quite translate in reverse. Yeah, uh, I've seen lots of films that look good on a, on a monitor yeah. or even a TV set. And when you see them on the big screen, they don't look right. They Things are off. Hmm. Um, so that was, that was our primary goal was to say, you know, if it gets into festivals, if it gets some kind of theatrical distribution, we want it to look as good as it can for that venue. And we kind of knew that it would look good by default on the smaller screens. What do you think are the main things that can, going back to that, like if, if, if it's, if it is designed for a smaller screen and then it, it might not look as good when put up on a, a, a large, in a large movie theater, what, what are some of the things you think contribute to that? Like what's something to avoid basically? Yeah. 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 No, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I think it's one of those things that we're seeing kind of, I've seen it called the Netflix effect, um, which is this idea that a lot of films nowadays are being made primarily for a streaming platform. So yeah. they are made to look good on a TV or even a mobile device. Yeah. But when you see them on a big screen, it looks somehow off. And it could be in the fact that something as simple as the color correction. So mm. when things are color corrected for a TV, it's not quite the same as being color corrected for uh, a movie theater. Because movie theaters, we, we have a, a built-in bias to how... Uh, a film on a big screen should look because traditionally speaking, it was real film. It was celluloid that right. they were using. When things were made for TV, they didn't use film. They used video, right? Traditionally speaking. So that's where TV shows came in. Um, and you could always tell the difference cinematically speaking uh, between video and film. These days, everything is digital across the board. It's all digital. So yeah. what what filmmakers kind of have to make that 
um, that decision early on in the process is to say, do I want to emulate film or do I want to emulate video? Both can be high definition. Both can yeah. look very professional and very glossy, but they do have a very distinct look to them still to this day. And I find that a lot of the stuff that's being made specifically for streaming tends to have more of a video look than it does a cinematic or, or celluloid look. And do you think that um, some of the, like for color, the color grading and all that, uh, do you think the color has to, is it a combination of like the, the saturation of the colors or the, um, or the depths of the shadows or, or is it like more with how it's lit um, or the camera it's angles? All of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's all of that. It's a combination of like, there are so many things that go into a movie um, that we sort of discussed at, at length, especially Dave and I, we had, we had so many of these conversations about um, the fact that we wanted it to look cinematic. Um, and what does that actually mean? Mm -hmm. And really it, it's, it's, everything comes into play from the lighting, the lighting um, I find for a lot of things that are done on TV, they're overlit. So everything's super bright. Um, mm, yeah. There's a lot of high contrast. Um, it's it's kind of, it, it looks to me unrealistic. Uh, it doesn't quite look like real life. Whereas I find film tends to look more like real life. Um, and it could be just the way that the, you know, film is captured um, by, you know, as part of the process. Um, so shadows are, are a big part of that. The color correction, what you want to do is get it so that everything isn't overly saturated. Um, you want there to be grays. You want there to be depth. But at the same time, you don't want it to be washed out. That's a mistake I see yeah. a lot of people making when they're trying to make that that cinematic look. Yeah. And then it ends up being, everything ends up being gray yeah. across the board. And that's not a good thing either. It, it's like you need to find this wonderful balance where there is saturation, but there's also depth and there's some gray because we're kind of used to seeing that on the big screen. And then some of there's other little tips and tricks that we've learned over the years, you know, like things like halation that happens in real film that doesn't happen in digital or on video. Um, and I don't know if you're familiar with that term. It's the I'm idea not. that there's ring, there's a slight rings of light around light sources so kind oh, of a okay. halo effect yeah digital when you film in digital there is no halo effect but when you film on film actual yeah. film it's really there so what you find now is um there are actually cheats in in da vinci and and oh, premiere yeah. pro and, and things like this where you can add these things in post and it's yeah. really quite clever how people are doing this and the fact that that they've even noticed it in the first place um, and these are just kind of things you pick up, you know, you mentioned earlier, you, you watch YouTube videos and I find YouTube is one of the best resources for learning a lot of these things. Absolutely. And you, you made, when you're talking about the lighting, um, like if something's too bright or it's not too bright, but it's brighter for TV, it immediately made me think of Game of Thrones because, uh, well, to back up a second. It's very true mm -hmm. that if you're watching something in a theater, the theater is basically blacked out, right? Mm -hmm. 
And if you're watching something on a TV screen, you're going to probably have some other light sources. And whenever I watched Game of Thrones, it there were so many times where they got complaints about it being too dark because it was right. just like, I mean, there were some episodes where it was just sort of like, what the hell is even going on right now? I can't even see anything. <laughs> and maybe, maybe that's part of it is because they're trying to make it, you know, more what you would definitely, what it would look like in a theater. And then if your TV didn't have the brightness all the way up, it was just like, what? I can't even see anything. Turn off all the lights. We need to watch this in the dark. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a great point. I had, I hadn't really thought of it too much like that, but um, I guess I had thought of it in the, in the reverse way when I was, complaining about not being able to see a thing um, yeah i know exactly the episode you're talking about as well that was that season eight episode with that with the battle um battle of um yeah Winter, yeah you couldn't see a thing in those night shots it was like what the heck am i watching i, I have no idea it was also one of my favorite episodes once it actually got going like the story i enjoyed it but it was it was just like come on right yeah 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 exactly um, exactly and uh Random question. Uh, what kind of camera did you use? Panasonic GH5s. Oh, okay. So, yeah, they're not, the cameras were good cameras. Um, oh. You know, we had we had no issues with them, and we had two of them. So we we always mm. wanted to have the um, we wanted to have matching cameras um, with matching lenses. So, um, what we didn't want to happen was the case of. Oftentimes when you use different types of cameras, so if say one's a Panasonic, another's a, you know, Ari Alexa or something like this, you'll get a a, a big mismatch in yeah. the the look, just the general yeah. look yeah. of the footage that you're getting from each. And then that means a lot more work in post trying to get them to line up to each other. We wanted to avoid that right out of the gate. So we thought, well, if we get two matching cameras, um, then we at least know that the the pictures will match with each other even though the angles are different yeah and, and those are a lot less work and those are great cameras i don't i don't have They're one awesome. but I've, I've seen plenty of footage um uh, especially when the I, yeah the gh5 i think i think i mostly saw footage when it first came out and people were just kind of freaking out about it because they're like oh this is <laughs> this is really good um yeah. And the best part, it's it was an affordable, like they're affordable cameras. They're not something that's going to break the bank. You know, right. it's it's so easy with some of these cameras. You get twenty thousand dollar budget, and you could blow that entire budget on the camera and the lenses. So right. we didn't have that luxury. It was like, okay, let's let's find something that's more affordable. Um. So what's the what's the timeline now? So, is it? Like, when can I see the movie? Basically, <laughs> you know, I know you got to do your process. You got to do yeah. the you got to make smart business decisions because um, you have this you have this one opportunity to do it right. Um, so I understand there's that whole process. And I, I assume it's about a year total with submissions and festivals. But that's about when right. do you think? Is that what you think? About a year for the whole festival process and then see what happens after that? That's about what we're aiming for. Yeah, it's um, it's one of those things you can never tell. Um, and of course, you know, at the same time, we are trying to see what other avenues we can pursue besides the traditional distribution model. 
you know, like the one we talked about before, right? Which is you you get the movie out there, it gets picked up, and then it gets put onto whatever platform, whether that's some kind of a, a limited theatrical release or or on streaming or stuff like this. Because these days you can do a lot of that yourself. Mm-hmm. There's really nothing precluding any filmmaker from getting their movie into a movie theater, except money. Money is right. the big limitation, right? Um, and same thing with with platforms, the streaming platforms. Uh, a lot of them, you can submit the movie yourself. There right. are some which still have gatekeepers, and it's a much harder process to get onto them. They kind of need to go through channels. It's almost like I, I look at it kind of in the way that when, you know, uh, back in the day, if I was shopping my scripts around, there are certain places that won't even look at your script unless you have an agent or a manager that they have previous relationship with right. to go through, right? If you approach them and call, you know, cold call and say, Hey, want to read this? They'll just say, no, no, thanks. Yeah. And, and I find with, with movies, with distribution, that can be the case for some platforms as well. So we, it's just a matter of finding out which trying to navigate that world, trying to make the right connections um, that, that, can open doors for you where they might otherwise be closed. Have, um, have you and your company, um, like, I'm, I'm curious about any thoughts on the strategies of how distribution is changing. And, um, for example, like, so there are some filmmakers who are just uploading features to YouTube. And it's just like, mm-hmm. let me, the game plan is let's just build our audience. Right. Um, things like that, or, you know, that are, I guess, less, con- you know, le- less uh, traditional. Do, do, do you ever think about r- random stuff like that or? Absolutely. We've discussed all of these things. Yeah. Um, it's, at the end of the day, I think what it comes down to is a matter of how much, uh, what's your return on investment that you're looking at to get. Right. Um, and that then becomes part of that talk about budget going into it. If you spend $100,000 on a film that then your only plan is I'm going to put it on YouTube and rely on advertising money, which right. is, you know, cents. Um, yeah how long will it take you to recoup that cost? Will <laughs> Only about 400 years. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's the point, right? Yeah. So so you, you really have to be kind of cognizant of that fact of, can you make this money back? Is it feasible? And which models is it feasible under? Um, how much you can make, That's that's something that I don't think anybody can say with any certainty about any film. Because we've all seen the movies where where Hollywood pumps two hundred million dollars into a movie, expecting it to be the next blockbuster, and it ends up being a complete wash. Right, the thing makes fifty million dollars at the box office, and there now they've lost hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah. Um, so, so we've all seen that. But on the flip side, we've also seen cases where some small picture is able to make its entire budget back and then some. Um, but the way that that can happen at an indie level is is a lot more difficult. And I think you just need to be more realistic about it um, and say, you know, what 
what is feasible for something like this? Can lightning strike? Can we win the lottery? Maybe, I don't know. Other people have done it. But the number of people that have done it, you could probably count on one hand. Um, yeah. So to say as a wide strategy for the entire industry, um, you have to be a lot more realistic and say, okay, if we put it on this specific platform, what do we stand to make? Versus if we go in this route, what do we stand to make? And so we've we've had those conversations. We've tried to do some analysis, right? Um, because for the most part, everything costs. It costs money to to do it yeah. in a specific direction. And then you have to see how much are you getting in return. And sometimes, unfortunately, it's one of those things where because it's a changing environment, you don't know until you try. Yeah, so it's incredibly tough. Um, mm -hmm. What about... Um, do you know much about um, people having success with, you know, uh, pay? I don't want to say pay per view, but that's what it is. Like, you know, like uh, self yeah. self distributing on Amazon Prime. People have to pay for a rental. Um, using social media ads to drive traffic to that. Have you have do you have experience doing that, or know of people who have had success with that or failure with that? Yeah. I've I've known a couple of people who've gone this route uh, in different ways. So with the VODs, right? That's what you're talking about is video yeah. on demand. There are different types of VODs out there. So the one that most people are familiar with would be your SVOD, which is your sus subscription-based yeah. video on demand. That's your Amazon Prime. That's your Netflix, Disney Plus, um, Apple, and so on, right? So you pay a monthly subscription fee to yeah. watch as many movies as you want. And- to get your film onto one of those, essentially what's happening is the streamer is paying you money to have your film as right. part of their lineup of films, right? So you are not dependent on as much individual views. They do sure. take into consideration from what I understand because I've had people, I, I know folks who have uh, done um, deals this way. They do take into consideration the number of views, uh, how popular your film is, because they will then gear it more towards their audience, right? It's that algorithm, right? that idea of like the more people that watch it, the more they will push it. Um, so that's one way of making money. Another one would be your AVOD. So that's your advertising um, video on demand, which would be companies like Tubi or Roku, um, the ones where you can watch them for free. But yeah. in order to watch them for free, you have to put up with commercials throughout yeah. the film. Yeah, And that's an interesting model because it's not as clear cut as it might seem. People think, oh, I'm just going to put it on there. It will have X number of commercials and then I'll get whatever money um, comes from the streamer based on what revenue they generate from their advertisers. What they don't realize is different films have different levels of advertising and the number of advertisements. Yeah. So what you want is as a filmmaker, you want to be in the position where your film really has kind of the best or the biggest advertisers advertising on it. And kind of a, a, a good amount of commercials in it. As annoying as that might be to a viewer, it's good for you as the filmmaker because right. that's kind of, you're getting that top dollar return. So I've known some folks who've done fairly well on that. 
uh, but it's again, it's a hit and miss because you don't know specifically which of your films are going to do better than others, which ones will attract the the bigger advertisers or more advertising. And right. the more you have, the more money you will make. And then there's the third, which is the sort of the, the smallest money generator. And that's your, um, your, your, uh, oh God, what is it? Isn't it what TVOD or no? Yes. It's, yes. I, yeah. I think so. TVOD. Yes. Yeah. And that's, that's your one where you're basically, it's a pay-per-view. You're, right. you're ordering the movie through, let's say, um, like you say on Amazon, yeah, you can yeah. order the movie, you pay for it. You're paying for each individual view, right? It's almost like going to the movie theater. You're paying, you're paying right. your ticket for the film. You watch a film and then that's it. Um, that one is, is the smallest money generator mm. across the board, because in order for that to do well, um, you need to have an audience for it. So if, if you have an, if you don't have a draw, with your film, if nobody knows about your film, if nobody knows any of the stars acting in it, or or something to entice that audience to pay that two ninety nine or five ninety nine, whatever the heck it is, uh, to watch the film, um, I I simply don't see it as a, a tenable avenue. You know, you'll you'll have some family and friends maybe who'll order it, and that's kind of it. Um, now, the way that you can maybe increase that viewership would be again good word of mouth. Um, so then that really puts the onus on you as the filmmaker. And I think that's true for honestly, any of these platforms, we need to promote our own work um, because we sort of have to come up with, we have to come to terms with the fact that other people really aren't going to do it. Um, Cause really what's in it for them. You know, we have to be our own drivers. We have to, we have to get in that driver's seat and, and really push the content, make sure people are aware of it. Um, share any kind of like positive news with the film, um, good reviews, good showings, awards, things like this, anything that gives it, puts it in a positive spin um, that makes people say, oh, I'd like to check this out. Great. But, that's, and that's what you want to hear. Have you known people to try doing their own mini, like, oh, we're going to, like, uh, I know this about, um, I know sometimes people do this where, They'll have like an indie film and they'll just they'll say like, hey, Dallas, we're renting at a theater, you know, 10 bucks mm -hmm. a ticket, 20 bucks a ticket. And some, like in the past, people used to be able to do that. I don't know how often they're doing it so much now. Do you know people who have tried doing that where they just kind of I take know, their movie on tour? I know lots of people who've done it and and with varying degrees of success. Yeah, um, it's it's one of those things that every every major city has got its independent theater chains yeah. in it, yeah. um, whether it's a standalone theater or it's part of an independent chain. So, and the reason why smaller filmmakers gravitate towards those is they're simply cheaper to rent out. Anybody can go out and rent out a big movie theater, but it will cost you that much more money, right? Because yep. you have to look at it from the theater's perspective. If they're a big chain, um, here in Canada, we've got, for example, Cineplex uh, down in the States. I know you guys have AMC, things like this. Um, those are big chains. For them to rent you out theater space, they are potentially turning their backs on a big studio film, which would right. be a good source of income for them. Um, so how do you make it worth their while? Well, the only way to do that is if they give you a, a fairly high price, rental fee 
right? And it's a limited window as well. Um, you'll find independent theaters are a lot more amenable to this because the types of movies they typically show are smaller films. Uh, so they won't charge you as much. So yeah, it's possible. And then, you know, as the person who is putting on the show, you're now responsible for marketing. You're now responsible for finding that audience. You get to dictate the ticket prices, really. Like, what do you want to charge the people to come see this film? Um, is it $10? Is it $20? That's really up to you. Um, and I've seen, like I said, varying degrees of success. A lot of times, a lot it, it's based on, is this a type of film that general audiences will want to see? Um, by and large, low-budget films that go wide tend to be horror, right? tend to be comedy, and tend to be action. Those three are are kind of the, the ones that transcend name um, requirements. Everything else, if it's a drama, good luck. I, that's all I can say to you is, is, is good yeah. luck because you're going to be in a, you're going to have a really, really hard time. Um, but again, it, you know, comes back to that word of mouth. The, the more people watch it, the more they like it, the more they talk about it. And it becomes this wheel, right? Yeah. Man, a lot to think about. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> thanks for going so in depth with all this. Um, yeah, man. I, yeah, I, uh, I'm going to, you know, obviously be on the lookout for any updates on this movie. Um, Cause I'm really well, curious you know to see it. You know, you know what? I will, I will send you a link to our private screener. Um, ah, Cause I would love to, uh -huh. I would love to hear Thank what you, you think of it. Okay. Cause we Perfect. do have a screener that's, that's for the festivals. Uh, of course. And uh, yeah. but I will share that with you because uh, I would love to hear your take actually. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, thanks for your time. Um, actually, do you mind if I use the video for this? Cause I want people to see if I don't know how many people uh, since I, I have a newer podcast, I've, I've been putting stuff on YouTube and for anyone who yeah. watches on YouTube, I kind of want them to be able to see all your DVDs. Cause it's such a, it's so cool. I, yeah. I'm, I'm absolutely um, Thrilled. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Um, all right. Well, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll put a link in the, the description, um, to you and your, your movie. Um, I I'm looking Thank at it right now. Um, and so hopefully everyone else can keep a tab on it too. And, uh, everyone, everyone yeah. will be ready for when it, when it, when it's available to the masses. Absolutely. Yeah. It's uh, you know, go to brimstonepictures.com guys for, for any of the updates, or even on my my website, personal website, neilchasefilm.com. Um, we're always updating and just like letting people know where we're at with the film, any news, um, any new trailers. We actually have a, a music video that's going to be dropping in a couple of days for one of the artists that appears on the soundtrack. She wrote a song specifically for the film and we shot a, a music video for her uh, for that ah, song. Cool. So that's going to be dropping over the next couple of days. Okay, perfect. Yeah. I'll probably put this, uh, this episode will probably be up in about a week. So anyone who's Wonderful. listening, it's pr the, the, that means the music video is out. Go watch it. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's uh, Colleen Ray is the name of the artist. Yes. Cool. <laughs> and the song is right. called, where do I go? Yeah. Where do I go? Got it. Cool. All right. Well, thanks, Neil. Um, yeah. Thanks, John. Ho hope to, uh, I'll be, I'll, I'll let you know what I think. And, uh, yeah, yeah. We'll have to follow up in a year once, uh, uh, see how things it. are going. I want to I want to hear about your experiences once you go through the gauntlet of film festivals. 
I'm sure I will have a lot to talk about and share with yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's, a, it's a learning process. You know, it's a learning process. And oh, yeah. That's what's so wonderful about it. And I'm always happy to talk about it and share whatever I found out with other people. Perfect. All right. Well, thanks again. I'll, yeah, I'll be in touch. I'll talk to you later. That was good, John. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.